Dear Jesus, we thank you for this Sabbath day and for the time we could spend together. Just pray that you'd help it to be a blessing to everyone here. Help us to grow closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so words evoke different thoughts in each of us based on our experience. And I'm just going to go through a few. Like I was just in a conference in Canada for my work and uh, Vancouver, and if you've never been to Vancouver, you should put it on your list of places to go because it's one of those places where every single view is a view. And uh, it's really amazing. Like, the, the city is in this bay, and then you look out in the mountains, you can see the snow, and it never gets much colder than here. I know it's kind of surprising. They have palm trees in, in Vancouver uh, because of the currents, so you guys could feel right at home. And uh, it does rain a little more. Um, it's a rainforest environment. So when it rains, it rains for a long time, not like the Florida dump. And just it's over in a few minutes. But it, it rains for a while. But it's a very beautiful place. And one of the uh, um, really fun things I was able to do was to go birding with some birders in that area. And this one guy I went with was English. A lot of the birders there are English. Um, and he would always say, poor lamb when he's referring to someone who's like a victim or someone he doesn't know what he's getting into he's oh that poor lamb and it was a, it was a phrase that i'd never really heard in that connection i always thought it was it was funny and then another word this is not from vancouver but bugbear have any of you guys heard bugbear you guys have bugbears these are things that cause obsessive fear irritation loathing bugbears another one is za does anyone know what za is it's a slang for pizza. You want to get my za, slice of za? Yeah. So you guys can now know the lingo. So this is za is, is, a, is a term that's being used by some, obviously. Uh, another one, Pearl Harbor. That strikes a, a memory in a lot of us, Americans. 17 days from now, it will be 81 years since the Japanese Navy surprise attacked the U.S., in 1941. Another one uh, which probably for most of you will not strike any memory is Canalzonians. So my wife's grandpa is Panamanian. You may know now, okay, Canal. And so they would, the phrase the locals, not Americans or other um, U.S. personnel involved, would ascribe to those that lived along the canal who really ran the place for a while was the Canalzonians, and it usually wasn't a term of endearment, okay? So they, they were usually, you know, your stereotypical colonial colonizer entitled and didn't really see the locals as equal to them, and that kind of stuff would lead to a whole bunch of stuff. You guys know that story, I'm sure. So these words have strong images, maybe some of us, some words more than others, but when we think of the word 144,000, usually that strikes terror into the hearts of many of us, perhaps a lot of conspiracy theories. Is that one of the words that comes to mind? Um, usually uh, YouTube videos stringing together many random facts to build to one critical, amazing point that doesn't really flow. But that's often what we think of when we think of the term. And... For me, the first time I encountered this term was with my cousin who lived with us for a few years when I was 
um, smaller, and he was needing a place to stay, and so my parents took him in, as they would take a lot of people in uh, over the years, and he told me one day about the 144,000, the first time I'd ever heard of it, and he said he was in church, and this wasn't an Adventist church, it was just another church, and the pastor had raised his hand filled with sand and said, this is the number of people the Bible says will be saved in the end of time. And then he's like, that's the 144,000. So it was a a little bit of a provoking thought that he gave me there, and I never forgot it. Like, that was something that stuck with me. I don't believe that, just in case you're wondering. But um, that was something that was in my consciousness from thence on. (laughs) It was a, it was a, it stuck with me. And when we think of the 144,000, we have to think of it in the terms of the Bible. So today, what we want to try to do is to go through this, this idea in the Bible and see what the Bible says and try to unpack from a biblical perspective, the 144,000. So before we get into the 144,000, let's just go to Revelation 1 verse 1. And we're going to look at how Revelation uses its imagery. So when John's making this book, he uses very, a very particular style of writing, apocalyptic. And he gives us this right from the start. He says in chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Now, this word signify is a Greek word, and it's in your notes here. It says, say me okay? And it just means symbols. So God gave this message to John, and he filled this message with symbols, okay? And so when we, from the beginning, John's giving us a nice pattern here. He's saying, how is he using his his style of writing? He's using symbols. And so when when we see these different things popping up, we should think, oh, symbol, not literal, okay? First thought. Verse three, now, why do we take the time to do it? Why don't we just read the Gospels? Well, it's in fact something that Jesus has told us to read. So it says in verse 3, chapter 1 still, Revelation, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Okay, so we get a blessing from it. So the Bible actually commands us to read it, and it says it's something that we should do. All right, so that's why we should do it. Now, going to the actual thing of the 144,000, let's look at the context. So it's important always when you're trying to study something to look at the context. So the first thing that we see in Revelation, the first symbol are seven what? Churches, right. Now the last church, Laodicea, there is a verse there that gives us a nice time marker. So chapter 3, verse 21 It says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we have right here a nice timeline. Jesus is talking here, and he says that 
I'm going to give anyone who overcomes the ability to sit with me on my throne. Just as I did what? As I also overcame. Now, what is he talking about? This is the cross, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And then he sits down in his father's throne. Okay? This is giving us a timeline that happens after the cross. So we know that what's being spoken of here is post-cross. This is in the Christian era. And uh, you may have said, well, I would have known that anyway. And that's good. But that's just giving it from the text. Okay? So... From the text, we know this is happening after the cross, and it's this window before Jesus comes back where he's allowing anyone who overcomes to sit down with him on his throne. Now, in Revelation 4, we then continue on, and if you were to summarize the chapter 4 in one word, you could use what? Anyone know? Throne. Okay, throne would probably sum up the word. Now, it's who's sitting on the throne. What are they doing to the one who's sitting on the throne? They're worshiping constantly. There's a rainbow over the throne. There's a description of what the throne's made of, what's sitting on. So that, that's giving this exalted status to the one who's on the throne, what's happening around it. That's really what chapter 4 is doing. And then we go to chapter 5. Now, in the question here, it, it says, you see, uh, there's a hear and see, and then it says, Revelation 5, Jesus is equal with who? So I'm sorry for the formatting. It could be improved a lot, so I just want to say that up front. But um, hopefully you can decipher this. So Revelation 5, Jesus is equal with who in chapter 5? Well, what we have seen in chapter 4 is this worshiping of the Father. He's sitting on the throne. And then chapter 5, we see the Lamb is now getting the same things that the Father got. He's getting the worship, the adoration, all those things that were given to the Father, the Lamb gets. Okay, so that's who is equal with Jesus. Jesus is equal with God, the Father. Then we see this really amazing statement. So let's look in verse, um, verse 4 to 5 of chapter 5. So we're in Revelation 5, verses 4 and 5, and there's this great scroll, and it's sealed and John is saying no one's able to open the scroll and so John's weeping and we're going we're to pick up right there okay so verses four and five so I wept much this is John because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it but one of the elders said to me do not weep behold the who lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals so John is weeping, and then someone says, don't stop weeping, and, and he hears about a lion. Okay, he hears this. And then he, verse 6, and I what? Looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been what? Slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, and the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. So he hears about a lion from this elder. And then what does he see? He sees a lamb. Now, this is just an amazing uh, literature right here. You could say this is an amazing elevation of what 
of John is taking an Old Testament theme, the line of the tribe of Judah. This is a very prominent Old Testament text. This is something that the Jews were looking for. They, when they were seeing Jesus, they were like, he doesn't really fit the line of the tribe of Judah mindset. You know, he's not our conquering Messiah. That's what they were looking for, the lion. So there's this, uh, this Bible student, G.B. Card. He makes this statement about this. He says, wherever the Old Testament says lion, read lamb. Wherever the Old Testament speaks of the victory of the Messiah or the overthrow of the enemies of God, we are to remember that the gospel recognizes no other way of achieving these ends than the way of the cross. So the, what John's doing here is he's taking this Old Testament idea and reinterpreting it in a Christian context. He's giving us a layer on this image, just like when we think of the word Pearl Harbor, these, there's thoughts that hit our mind as Americans, okay? When Jews would listen to the word lion, bang, that would be straight to Messiah thought. That would be the first thing they'd be thinking of, okay? But John is saying when you hear lion, you need to see a lamb. And so we're going to keep unpacking this. So this is the principle because the way Jesus got the victory on earth was not like a lion. It was like a sacrificial lamb. And that's the way he conquered. So when we go on to Revelation 7, we're going to finally get to the 144,000. And we're going to see a similar formula here. So Revelation 7, verses 1 to 4. And after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth and on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Okay. And then it goes through this list of the tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. And then verse 9, we're going to go back to this in just a second, but go back to verse 4. I want to just reemphasize this. And I what? Heard. Then look what he sees in verse 9. After these things, I what? Looked and behold a what? Great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches. All right, so just as we had seen a formula in chapter 5, here and see, we see it in chapter 7. John hears a number, 144,000, then he sees a multitude that no one could number, from every nation tribe, tongue, and people. This is the same group. Just like when John heard about the lion, he saw a lamb. Same person. Jesus is a lion. He's a lamb. He is all these things. Same with the 144,000. They are the same group. So for me, it's pretty clear that the 144,000 represent a multitude that's not numberless. It's, 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 you can't number, sorry. A multitude you can't number. 
It's not, it's a symbolic number, just like John has always been using in Revelation a symbol. He uses this for that. Again, now, when we think of Israel in the New Testament, Romans gives us a nice path for this. So Romans chapter 2, and there's several verses here. We're not going to go to them all. But Romans chapter 2, verse 28. So as a Christian, and remember, Revelation is post-cross. So we have to be thinking of this. This is a Christian interpretation on the Old Testament. That's what John's doing. He's taking all these prophecies. How do they fulfill with Christ in the picture? Now, sometimes our uh, evangelical friends will get off track with this and will try to bring us back to pre-cross and say Israel has something real. There's a literal aspect to Israel that we have to think about. But when you look at the cross, the this changes everything. And so verse 28, we're just going to look at one, one verse in this. For he is a Jew, for he is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not for men, but from God. All right, and then I'll just read one more. Galatians chapter 3. Verse, verse 29. Okay. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So basically, with Christ in the picture, we are now part of Abraham's seed. We get all these promises that Abraham had. All of these Old Testament prophecies are reinterpreted in the light of the gospel. And so when we see in Revelation 7... The tribes here, we have to think, well, how do we as a Christian interpret this? Now, it's interesting to me when people talk about the 144,000, they often see this perfect sort of uh, superhero group. But it's very hard to see that when you actually start looking at the stories of the people that are being described in this. We have Judah, Reuben. Reuben, now, many of you perhaps are familiar with the story of Genesis and how Jacob had 12 sons, and the stories of his sons, and, and, and they're mostly character failings, right? Reuben was one of, the, one of the examples. He slept with his father's concubines and was, as a result, lost all privileges. And this pattern, you know, you have some of these sons in here selling their brother Joseph to be a slave. So, you know, typically not what you would consider superhuman Christians, right? That's not our picture of a Christian perfect warrior kind of person. Generally not, um, perhaps. So when we think about this, we have to see well, what, is, what is really going on here? Well, this is an example, and I want to read a little quote from, uh, this is from C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this uh, thing from Screwtape Letters. And this is Screwtape Letters, interesting book. It's trying to help us see what would happen from a fallen angel's perspective. And this is one of the fallen angels speaking, and they're talking about a person they're trying to to win to the dark side. And uh, this is what he says. 
One of our great allies, remember this is a fallen angel speaking, at present is the church itself. Well, that's interesting. Do not misunderstand me. I do riot mean the church as we see her spread before all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate, talking about the church that he was in. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression in his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy with neither of them understands and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. And when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just the selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on these neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Perhaps you guys have the same temptation here. Um, this is a challenge. We see the church as it should be in our minds, many of us. But then we also see it as it is, lacking, right? Okay? And so we get, we get discouraged. And so when you look at this set of, you know, these are the best that we can offer here. Reuben, you know, Reuben is not exactly your, you know, you don't want to start off with Reuben. That's why I could see they moved him to second. But even second, Reuben Silver, hard to understand. Gad, Asher, Naphtali. So when we go into this, uh, Genesis 49, I just want to touch on this for just a briefly. Uh, Genesis 49, Jacob has prophecies. And if you look in your notes, um, the, the colorful image, the, these are the, what many people have tried to decipher based on the Bible are the symbols, the, the sigils or the standards that each tribe would have as their sort of call sign, okay? So you had Reuben. He was unstable, and so that's why he has this water. That's what his dad told him right before he died. You're unstable as water, but you were my firstborn. Okay, but that, was, that became his call sign. Then you have Simeon as a goat, Naphtali as a deer, and Dan as a serpent, and it goes on. So, and these symbols represented aspects of their character. Judah, lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a nice one. Um, and when we think about we are now all Abraham's seed, I think it's helpful for us to think, well, where do we fit in in the tribe? And so it, this is kind of like a Christian zodiac in a way where, where we see God's people fitting into different character traits. And each one of these characters represents what you can do with this kind of character. It can go bad, and it can go good, okay? And what God is doing here is he's saying that whatever your trait of character, you may be a really, like a John, John, the sons of Zebedee, what was their nickname? Sons of Thunder. You may be that kind of a sort of person. God has a place for you in his kingdom, okay? He has a redemption aspect that he can take, and mold you and make you useful to him, okay? Now, the 144,000, when you get to this, 
Uh, so, so Genesis 49 is an example. And then later, Deuteronomy 33, Moses expands on it a little more and talks about each of these tribes. Now, 144,000, how do you get to that number? First, you go 12 times 12. So in the New Jerusalem, we see that Jerusalem is made up of 12 gates and they have 12 foundations. So it's again, it's taking this Old Testament idea, the gates were the tribes of Israel, the foundations are the 12 apostles, okay? Then the New Testament. So basically, Jerusalem is made up of New and Old Testament believers, okay? All these people from this, these both eras. And then what we want to look at now is this idea of the numbering. When you see this number, you have to think in the way John was thinking. John is extremely an, an amazing Bible student. One, one thing that we have to constantly remind ourselves is when John is giving us something, he's really showing it. You've got to go find this somewhere in the Old Testament because that's what he's doing. He's always pointing us back to something that was written already. So what is written already? We're going to look at that. So when we see a census, a numbering in the Old Testament, it is always in reference to war. Okay? It's always in reference to war. So for this, we're going to go to Numbers 1. Numbers 1. And verse 3. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. All right. Numbers 1 and verse 3. Actually, we'll start in verse 2. Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names, every what? Male individually from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to what? So this is a war census. Now, when they would take the census... It was such a temptation that you would start to think, well, we have a million, you know, half a million men. We can probably do some damage, and we can do this without anyone helping us, a.k.a. God. Um, so they would just be taxed right off the bat. As soon as they would do this, they would have to give up a, a tax. It was a flat tax. You couldn't give more or less than what a rich person or a poor person had to give the same tax. This is in Exodus 30. But it was a way to counter this tendency to think, well, we are pretty strong. But every time you see a census, David, remember when he made a census, he got, he got in big trouble for this. And this is actually an interesting question, and I don't have time to think about that with you now, but David got in trouble for doing a census. But every time you see a census in the Bible, it is a war census. They're getting ready for war. So when we see this description of the 144,000, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. It's talking about men going to war. And just to give you a little more, uh, you could see in Revelation 14, the other place where 144,000 is mentioned, it talks about some, some characteristics of these. And it says in verse, let's see, verse 4 of chapter 14, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, so on that note, this is something that was common in war for Israel. They would not have any sexual relations. And you can see this like when you look at um, David, when he's 
running from Saul, he goes into the priest, and in 1 Samuel 21, is where this is found, he tells the priest, look, I've not slept with any women lately. We're okay to get the bread, and this is normal for when we go out to war, okay? So that's something that was just Israel's policy, and there's, this is from the Torah, from also from Samuel. We see that. Then if you keep going, for they are not... For they are virgins, these are the ones who have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. So these are men, and they're, they're doing this uh, sexual purity thing. Again, this is talking to us in military language from the Israel Old Testament. Okay? Now, what about this, 12, this unit of thousands? So if you go to Numbers 31, let's go there real quickly. So Numbers 31, the battalion of Israel... I'm, I'm terrible with military terminology, so I may have ruined that, but the, the large grouping was a thousand. So if you go to Numbers 31, verses 4 to 6, so it says, when they're getting ready to set them up for war, a thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to the war. Okay? So the way they would set up their armies they would be divided in groups of a thousand. So again, we're just building this idea that when a Bible student read Revelation 14 and 7 and saw this thing, they would be thinking, okay, this is military language that's being used. Now, when we think about that, the question is, was John trying to arm the church into this sort of warrior culture in the time of Israel? Uh, excuse me, just after... the. Jesus had been resurrected. Is this what he's doing? Well, I, I think we have no evidence that that ever happened. Did someone take this and say, well, we're going to start going around and killing our enemies because John says to arm and become like an Old Testament battle army. This is something that didn't happen for the Christian church till the Crusades a thousand years later, and they were not using this to do it. The, when, when John's writing this, what has happened recently that's huge in the memory and the consciousness of the people of Israel and even the Christians. What has just happened? A.D. 70. The destruction of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has been burned to the ground and a million Jews have been, have been killed. This has been extremely, like for the whole community, traumatic. Okay? So John, using military language, is somewhat uh, a little bit a little bit uh, dangerous in a way because the Jews have been in big trouble for doing this. But why did John's readers never start arming themselves? That's really the question that I want us to think about. Why did they start, why did they think, well, we're, we're, we're going to take this and, and go out and start fighting the Romans or something? Well, it's, it's really, when you go back to chapter 5, remember we said we hear a lion, see a lamb. So, when we think about the way Jesus did battle, this is what John is trying to build toward. He's saying that the way Jesus did battle is the way we are to do battle. So just as Jesus was a lamb in the way he conquered, we are to be a lamb. So if you go to Revelation 12, verse 11, Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, and they overcame him, talking about the dragon, this is the great opposer of God's people, by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So the way that they overcame was by sacrificing themselves, okay? If it meant, if up to the point, if it meant so, to die. Now, just in case, as a second part, he later on in Revelation 13 says, whoever uses a sword will die with the sword. So he's saying, it's not military might that we're talking about here. We're talking about the sacrifice, being willing to testify about Jesus up to the point of giving your life if necessary. So this idea of testimony that is willing to go the distance, like I'm willing to be testify about Jesus up to the point of death if necessary. That's what John's looking for. And so when he's describing this group of people that are going to be filling God's kingdom, standing before his throne at the end of time, he's saying that the way they fight is like Jesus fought, like a lamb. That's how we get the victory over this world. He's taking this idea of army and saying we do need to be like soldiers, but in the sense of like Jesus kind of a soldier. He's twisting it, just like he took the lion, the lion idea and made it Christian idea. He's taking this army concept. That's a great idea. Now I want to take all the good things about what it is to be in the army and make it a Christian idea. All right, so he's redeeming the, the concept of this army. Now, when we think about safetyism in our church, it's interesting. Look, when we talk about today, like the church, Adventist Church in Florida has won about 1,200 people in baptism every year, roughly, for the past few years. And when you break that down, 280 churches in our conference, it's about three baptisms per church, which if you then take away the two of the three that are from within the community, which are just children becoming um, baptizing in, you're talking about one person from the community becoming an Adventist every year per church. Pretty low numbers. And I think a lot of this is contributed from this concept of safetyism. I think our church is really obsessed with it, and not just Adventists, but the church in general. And this is from a, a book called Crazy Love by um, Evangelical Pastor. He said, uh, we are consumed by safety, obsessed with it, actually. Now, I'm not saying it is wrong to pray for God's protection, but I am questioning how we've made safety our highest priority. We've elevated safety to the neglect of whatever God's best is. We often, I remember um, we were in a part of a group called uh, SALT, and I was loosely affiliated with it. I wasn't as part, but I heard a story about this group they had to they were focusing on getting kids in Taylor Apartments, which is in South Apopka, and they were trying to get a church to work with them. And South Apopka is just a really poor community, and the church was not wanting to do it. This is at least one pastor, so I wouldn't say the whole church, but the pastor who was heading it up was not wanting to do it because it was too dangerous. He felt that it was too dangerous to do, I mean, the, the SALT people have been there for years doing this, and they were just trying to get a church to be part of it. There's like 100 kids running around this community, just not really mentored or anything. And so they were trying to get a church to, to start doing some things to get them to Sabbath school, that kind of stuff. It's too dangerous. Um, yet, at the same time, Americans send their children out to the football field, 
and 300,000 a year get concussions, 150,000 serious concussions. So we, we, are, we have this sort of strange hypocrisy where we allow risk in certain places, but then when it comes to God, it's strange. We get really tight, and we get a little nervous about it. So if we go back to like the pioneers that our Adventist church was built on, Jane Andrews, the first missionary, he went over to Europe and eventually died there because it was, he, had, he just health, health-wise gave it up, could not survive. And I think that for us to start changing the way, the, if we want to try to really reach our community, we have to reimagine in our minds what Jesus is, get, has for us. He has a, a plan that he may want to use us in ways that could be sacrificial. And we have to be willing to do that. Um, so our, in Reve- if you go to, with me to Revelation 14, we're almost done. I want to look at verse 5. So it's talking about the 144,000 here. And it says, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, this word, without fault, is um, M omos, okay? I'm hopefully trying to say that right. So, that's, it really is a verse that is coming from the New Testament. And this word is also used several times to describe the sacrifice of Christ and how he was blameless and was given up as a sacrifice for us. So, what Jesus is telling John to us is that he is giving us this, this high calling. He wants us to be a sacrificial army. He wants us to be willing to go out and pour out our life force to others. And the verse that we read for the scripture, Romans 12, we often think about, oh, I want to just die for Christ. But it's not just dying. It's, it's living, pouring out your life force, like giving your life energy over time that's what he's looking for. And um, that kind of discipline that an army, this image of an army is the mindset we have to be in. Like we have to be thinking of it as that serious. Now there's a, there's a singer I like to um, listen to and much, uh, when I was growing up, it was, he would give me a lot of, uh, help me to go to sleep and stuff. Uh, Michael Card, Many of you may have heard of it, but he wrote this song, God's Own Fool. I'm just going to, not going to sing. Um, okay, so, but it's, it's, uh, I'm going to read the lyrics. Seems I've imagined him all of my life as the wisest of all of mankind. But if God's holy wisdom is foolish to men, he must have seemed out of his mind. For even his family said he was mad, and the priest said he had demons to blame. But God, in the form of this angry young man, could not have seemed perfectly sane. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell, believe the unbelievable, and come be a fool as well. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. And you'll have the faith his first followers had, and you'll feel the weight of the beam. 
So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. So we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. Okay. So in closing, I just want to read this uh, verse from John. It's uh, John chapter 20. And it's the Great Commission from John. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So when we read this, think about John 3.16, God gave his only begotten son for us. That's, that's the kind of giving Jesus is giving, he's giving us to the world in that same way. He's saying that I'm going to put you out there, and I may put you out there to burn. I may put you out there to live, but I'm giving you just as the Father gave me to you, I'm giving you to the world. So today I want to make an appeal for each of you to think about that in your own lives. God is calling for a complete sacrifice, 100%. And that's what's amazing about the gospel. Like Jesus is giving us... This, and it's not for us to win salvation, win a, a heaven or anything like that. It's because we love Jesus and because we are his people that we are glad to give ourselves for him. All right, let's have a prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this Sabbath and for this um, word that you've given us. We pray that you'd help us to each come closer to you, to uh, be willing to give our lives for you. We thank you, Father, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.